You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to the Core Curriculum Podcast here at ChristianHumanist.org. We are doing slow reading of important texts that uh, Columbia University has listed as a part of their Humanities Core Curriculum. And so we're excited today to be talking about the poet Sappho uh, and her poems on aging and death in particular. So uh, with me today, people who need no introduction, Nathan Gilmore, who lives in North Georgia with his wife and two children. He's a professor of English at Emmanuel College and one of the Christian Humanists' main dudes. And then we've got Jay Elred, who teaches high school history in New Bern, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife, Crystal. He is the author of Stories in the End, Short Letters from a Long Life, and can sometimes be heard guest hosting various shows around the Christian Humanist Network. And I am Christina Bieber-Lake. I teach English at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and I also um, can be seen on various shows, but mostly the Christian Feminist Podcast. And we've just been chatting about how we're all members of Zoom University these days. Um, Don't know where we are in the quarantine by the time this show airs, but uh, (laughs) it's just a part of our reality right now. Uh, and we've been practicing, the three of us, social distancing for as long as I've known these guys, because I've never actually met them. We've only met virtually. So that's, we were social distancing before it was cool, right? That's right. That's trendsetters, right. Trendsetters. That's it. <laughs> so there are some benefits to doing it the way we do it, and that is that we didn't need to slow down on the core curriculum at all. So here we are, and seems kind of appropriate to be talking about death, aging and death. So, so there's some relevance here. All right. Well, I thought I'd get us started by uh, kind of grouping some of the poems. They're very short, and when they're super short, I thought we would each read from our translations just to put the poems themselves out there uh, and so that the listeners can know what we're talking about if they don't have it in front of them. So the first grouping that I thought we'd talk about is 150, 147, and 55, and these are all short, so I thought that if you guys don't mind, we could read our different translations. How does that sound for you guys? Sounds fine to me. Yep. Now, uh, we'll start with 150 then, and uh, we'll each read that, and then we'll each read 147 and then 55. So, 150. Oh, and Christina, before we start, yeah. uh, do you want to yeah. call out which translations we are using? Good point. I have the Ann Carson. Okay. Jay? Um, I am using Philip Freeman. And very, you? Very good. And I'm using uh, uh, Aaron Puchigian, uh, which is a name that I actually made Michael say out loud on a uh, previous episode of Core Curriculum because I just couldn't say Puchigian out loud. <laughs> yes, that's all. <hard. laughs> I can understand that. There seems to be a few different reasons for that. <laughs> it's a tough, that's a tough name. All right, so 150, I've got, for it is not right in a house of the muses that there be lament. This would not become us. 
I have. It is not right in the house of those serving the muses for there to be lamenting. This would not be fitting for us. Here is the reason it is wrong to play a funeral song in the musician's house. It simply would not be decorous. Okay, you definitely have the more ancient translation there, don't you? Well, it is a translation that's trying to rhyme. Okay. So, yeah, so it, it, it plays a little bit loose with the Greek, but I like the sound of it. Good, good. That That's something we could talk about, too. The the woes of translation, right, when it comes to poetry in particular. All right, I'm uh, moving to 147, if you guys could go. I've got someone will remember us, I say, even in another time. Someone, I say, will remember us in time to come. I declare that later on, even in an age unlike our own, someone will remember who we are. Okay, so interesting how things are put different places in these, isn't it? And then 55, just for this last grouping, and this is my favorite of the group. Um, Dead, you will lie in never memory of you. Will there be nor desire into the aftertime? For you do not share in the roses of Pyaria, but invisible too in Hades' house. You will go your way among dim shapes, having been breathed out. But when you die, you will lie there, and there will be no memory of you, nor longing for you after. For you have no share in the roses of Pyaria, but you will wander unseen in the houses of Hades, flying about among the shadowy dead. And get ready for the rhyme. But when you lie dead, no one will notice later or feel sad, because you gathered no sprays from the roses of the Pyarian muses. Once lost in Hades' hall, you will be homeless and invisible, another shadow flittering back and forth with shadows of no worth. Wow, that's really different. Mm. <laughs> Very. Very interesting. Well, it seems to me appropriate place to start for this podcast in particular, just to kind of connect to what we've already been talking about with ancient Greek culture. How does her poetry... Is it similar, different, uh, the treatment of aging and death in particular? I just thought we'd start out with that question, and then we can go anywhere you guys want on these three poems. Jay, I liked your comments on uh, 55, so won't you kick off with those? Okay. Um, pardon, I don't know how to say this, I would say pardon my crudity, but to me this was almost the ancient equivalent of you know telling someone to go to hell, although <laughs> – in in ancient go to Hades, in, go to Hades. yeah go to Hades. But in 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 their culture, nearly everyone would end up there anyway. So how much worse could it could it get? And so in my translation, I saw maybe about four four ways that um, that Sappho is consigning her nemesis to the afterlife. Um, mm-hmm. First, there was no memory of her, and. After uh, Siri, was it series one that we covered uh, the Odyssey? I went ahead. Uh, Iliad, Iliad. Oh, Iliad, Iliad. There we go. Sorry about that. I went ahead and I watched the movie Troy for the first time. (laughs) And and what stuck out to me was the one scene I can't remember if if even had a name, but they've got the young soldier going, uh, talking to Agamemnon about how he doesn't have the courage to do what's being done. And Agamemnon replies, well, that's why no one will remember your name. 
And mm. that's kind of what stuck, stuck out to me, that in a culture where everyone ends up in the same place anyway, the only thing they've got going for them is that someone is going to remember their name and remember their deeds and what they've done and the glories of the past, which I think we'll circle back to when we get uh, get to 147. And it's interesting. I mean, one of the things about uh, reading Sappho in the 21st century is that we get everything that she does in fragments, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, the the speculation that I was enjoying is, I mean, what what is the first half of this poem, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, I mean, you know, is it that, you know, she is resentful that no one is paying her any attention now and she's saying well all of you who won't look at me now won't be even talking about you once you're in the afterlife or is it that she's got like jay said a particular nemesis uh who she is you know consigning to eternal forgetfulness i mean it's just fascinating to me uh you know the possibilities for uh what could be the setup for this punchline Yes, and not only that, I feel like even if we had the rest of the the poem, as it were, then probably we wouldn't have anybody's name because that's the whole point, right? Is we're I'm deliberately leaving your name out. You're going right. to be so forgetted, for, forgotten. Excuse me, so, <laughs> so forgotten. Yeah, I feel like let's add that to the new dictionary or something. Forget it. Yeah, forget it. Um, she's going to be that person is going to be so forgotten so you know in oblivion that i'm just going to refer to you as somebody that i've forgotten yeah that's fascinating that's uh and again you know what i like uh to think about is you know i mean is this a person who has actively been her tormentor or is it someone who doesn't know her name right right is it kind of a vindictive uh you know well, certainly a vindictive reversal of the typical motif, right, of glory and immortality, and especially starting out in my version anyway, dead you will lie. You know, you're just yeah, going to be dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no immortality here at all. You're just dead. And you will be invisible, too, is the way mine puts it, in Hades' house. Um, you are not even going to be seen among the shades, right? Because, you know, when you go down to Hades, you can see the shades. Uh, the the ghost there right the the dead but uh not not this person you will be invisible is that the way your translations read too um mine says uh unseen rather than rather than invisible okay and i have a little bit more to say about that a little bit a, a little bit later on with um with this particular one you know you've been we've been talking about the relationship between Sappho and the and the unnamed subject, which would bring up this my second observation, which was not only would her name not be remembered in the future, but even when she has died, no one living would mourn her passing. Um, there, she goes on to say, "There's no longing after you." So it's almost like you know, it's not just that you won't be remembered, but even you know, as soon as you're dead in the ground, no one's going to care. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, Nathan, I really liked your your translation. It made it made better sense of of perhaps why she wrote this one or wrote this part wrote this particular poem because I was trying to figure out where where the um where the muses came into this with the and is it Pierian Pierian? My Greek is almost twenty years in the past now. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, my Erasmian vowels, uh, which now David Bentley Hart has mocked, so I'm eternally self-conscious, uh, would say Pierian, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what a demotic Greek uh, pronunciation would be. Right. Well, the Pierian Spring was supposedly the, the uh, home of the Muses, and it's where the daughters of Pieria or Pyrrhus, whichever, not Pyrrhus, but Pyrrhus, um, Pyrides, there we go. Pyrides, his daughters lost a competition with the muses and were turned into magpies. And I kind of liked Nathan's translation a bit better because she's saying, you know, you didn't gather roses at the spring of the muses. It's almost like saying, you know, you didn't even try. And that's why no one's going to remember you, which I think um, fit a little bit better in the translation than with what I have. Right, right. And the by the way, the uh, invisible or unseen, either one would work. It's afanes. So, I mean, it is not seen. And then speaking... Yeah, which is Go ahead. Pretty, it's, that's to be pretty... Uh, <laughs> not around, right? If you're not even around in Hades, not even seen, not heard from. That's... Right, right. Right. Go ahead, Jay. Which, what you well, I was going to say, you know, speaking of unseen, the first thing that came to my mind when, when Sappho can confines her, her subject to wander unseen in Hades, I thought of the of the opportunists in Dante's Inferno. The oh. those who those who refused to switch to pick a side. And so even though their shades were seen, Virgil refused to name any one of them and pretty much told Dante he himself ought to forget that they were there. That's a great connection. That's interesting. And I read somewhere that the roses, these particular roses, were usually a mark of commitment to goddesses, like in a crown. So maybe this particular person uh, is not committed to the gods or the goddesses or just as, I don't know, immoral or irreligious or something. I don't know. But I, Right. Or, or as, as Jay noted, I mean, specifically, not just any old goddesses, but to the muses. To the muses, yes, right. So right. it's someone who had no use for the arts, right? So I mean, you know, this mm-hmm. is a, the this is the someday. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm imagining a scenario, obviously, but you know, uh, this is the person who has been, you know, mocked for doing poetry rather than something useful. Well, someday you'll be forgotten too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you'll if you'll pardon the pun, it's the original shade. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Very nice. Right. Well, and it is that association, right, with poetry and immortality, how you get your immortality through poetry. Uh, and uh, if you can't be committed to poetry, then you don't deserve mortality, immortality in any way, shape or form. I, I know my last line is having been breathed out. I think that's really good. Yeah. What did you guys have for that last line? Oh, my last line just ends with flying among the shadowy dead. Mm-hmm. But I, I really do like that having been breathed out, it puts in mind of that, Um, well, life is a vapor. You know, it's mm-hmm. there and it's gone and it dissipates in the morning mist and so long farewell. Mm-hmm. And if the poets are not immortalizing you, immortalizing you, then you're gone. You're done. At least in the ancient Greek view, yeah. So what about uh, 150, or, yeah, 150, it's not right in the House of Muses that there be lament. This would not become us. Go ahead, Jay. Okay. So this was my first time ever reading Sappho. 
I had, I had never read read before and I think my comment was like when I picked this up on a Sunday afternoon to read it it was like if these are the fragments that she that we have left over then the original I mean what would the originals have looked like um, Yeah talk about it's all about desire right I had long, strong and, desire for the rest of it And and so I I stopped several times I mean these these are very short fragments but I had to stop several times and one of them was for was for one was for fragment 150 and it, I just had to had to stop because it was like she's telling us to have the right attitude in the right circumstances you know we're looking at poems regarding aging and death and it seems maybe a little bit cliche but to put it in in some um, terms or an analogy that others might understand I was thinking of that line from from the Princess Bride of all movies, where they've escaped the fire swamp and the six-fingered man has captured Wesley and Buttercup, and Wesley tells him, you know, we are men of action, lies do not become us. It's that idea of having the right mindset and the right attitude and not being not being swayed by circumstance, if yes, that makes it, sense. Yeah, it does, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think the Greek has something to do with the euphemism, right? Euphemia, am I right, Nathan, about that? Uh, in 147 or in 150? 150, yeah. Oh, let me look here. I've, I've got the Greek in front of me. You know, which has to do, of course, with things that are uh, appropriate to the occasion, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. Um, if if yeah, you're in the house of Jesus, yeah. Yeah, preppy, preppy actually is the Greek here, so, I mean, it, it really is proper. It would proper. not be proper to do this. Which, you know, which is, you know, euphemisms, <laughs> the whole idea of like you're trying to say death, but you're not using the most difficult or offensive word for it. Um, and, and euphemism has all bad connotations for us in the 21st century. But propriety, in other words, propriety has kind of left the whole idea of mm-hmm. euphemisms. Right. Um, it's, and it's interesting, too. I mean, our, our translations uh disagreed on this uh about whose house it is i, I was going to ask about that mm. yeah i mean you know the the, the greek here is you know uh moisopolon uh so i mean it is the music maker so i mean it could be the muses it could be musicians uh again i mean it, it's a word that has a broad enough range of connotations that you can do a few things with it i i, I don't think any of our translations is being unfaithful with the greek but i think they're definitely going in different directions with it I, lo- I I personally prefer muses because then it would encompass all the humanities. That's just me. Oh, and see, that's interesting. I because I, I I come up with different scenarios, and again, with a fragment, you can do the speculation. I, I think if you do the muses house, you're right that uh, you know, the idea is that the muses, because they are ever living, they're not the uh, the right setting for a funeral song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because the muses have to do with memory and memorialization and um, immortality, right? Of and so lament doesn't fit with that. Or I mean, I, you know, because it is the house of immortal beings, you wait till you're outside of their house to commemorate mortality. Hmm. Interesting. And here I was taking it to be even something more different than that, but the idea that we 
we serve something greater than ourselves. It's not it's not about us, so to speak. Okay, that makes some good sense. That makes some good sense. And and it's funny because if you take it as musician in the sense of human beings who make music, it's a very different picture, but it could also be compelling, right? You know, uh, you know the the picture I kind of got in my mind was that it was actually a musician who had died, and you don't play the funeral song in that person's house. You wait till you're burying the person. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. But again, you know, like I said, I, what, what's interesting to me is, and, and you know, if we've got listeners out there, by the way, who know Greek better than I do, and I'm certain we do, uh, let me know if I'm giving this term too much flexibility. I might be doing that. Uh, but it strikes me that you could go either direction with it. Huh. Yeah, at any rate, these three lines are just tantalizingly, you know, that's all there is. Well, in my version, three lines. It's just so short, so little, right? Not so much more. Fun with fragments. Fun with fragments. <laughs> it's the postmodern way, uh, uh, so that fits. Um, so, does this connect to one forty-seven for us? Um, these two poems um, discussed. Yeah, I'll take the first swing at this one. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to flip pages and get to the right, uh, the right part of the Greek text. So I, (laughs) I'm having to work both hands here. Uh, But you know, I, I, what strikes me about this is uh, that you know the, the other age uh, or an age unlike our own. My translation, the the heteron, amion. It's fascinating because one of the I'm going to say prejudices that I have inherited from uh, German historicist thinking uh, is that Uh-oh. the modern age invented the historical consciousness. Uh, and yet, I mean, even in this little two-line fragment, we've got the heteron, we've got the other, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, when we've only got this, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six-word fragment in the Greek, uh, there's not a whole lot you can do with that heteron because there's only five other words with it. But there's still the possibility here that Sappho is imagining, uh, you know, sort of a horizon beyond which she can't see, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be something else coming that we don't have the vocabulary for. And yet, I think that, you know, people will remember us. What do you think, Jay? I was thinking along the, along the same lines, and again, I hate to, I hate to try to put put her in modern terms but when i read that the first thing i thought of was a uh, was a line from terry pratchett and i'm certain our listeners if they've listened to the christian feminist podcast they've heard me wax eloquent about pratchett but in one of his books reaper man he says something very similar that no one is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world fade away it's that idea that uh, you know death isn't the ending there 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 is something that that goes on after death, even if it's only memory. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand how anybody can say that historical consciousness wasn't invented in ancient Greece when the whole point of these poems is to, and the names in them, right, is to remember. Well, historical consciousness, I should clarify there, historical consciousness in the foregrounding of radical historical change and change of consciousness specifically oh okay okay so i mean you know the the stereotype is that you know when uh you know the anglo-saxon poet writes the exodus poem uh all of the hebrews think like anglo-saxons 
Mm, mm, but that, you know, the idea of a changing consciousness uh, is something that arises with modern historiography. Uh, but here, like I said, that heteron is, is tantalizing in that respect. Yeah, it's Well, the way that my translation is laid out is it's someone will remember us, I say, even in another time. And so there's this interesting connection with the poet's voice, I say that someone's going to remember us, and then the, the choric or the choral us, part of the Greek chorus, I would even say. Um, oh, that's good, that's good. You know, yeah. Some of our singers, some of, you know, um, remember uh, the chorus, even in another time. The poet is almost declaring it to make it true. Uh, and yet here we are remembering this. And we are definitely in another time. Right? So <laughs> there's this kind of almost defiance to this little fragment. Indeed, indeed. And of course, that's the oldest theme of poetry in the book, right? Like, oh, I'm writing these uh, these poems down so that, that I'll be remembered, so that we'll be remembered through these verses. Um. Do you guys know much about the history of the finding of the fragments and stuff? Because I really don't know anything, and this seems like an appropriate place to... Yeah, this this is where we need David Grubbs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, I, yeah, my, my text criticism of Sappho is, is non-existent. <laughs> well, you know, we're I think this one, even though we're recording fairly early, is going to be later in the release. So maybe the previous episodes have already dealt with that uh, question of... Um, maybe my past me, which is my future me... We'll say something about it. Well, my the copy of Sappho that I have actually has a chapter or two about how we got the fragments, but I w- don't recall it well enough to try to give a synopsis. Yeah. Um, although I, I could try. <laughs> okay. Um, from from what I understand, Sappho was almost I don't want to say too well known, but it appears that she was so well known that it almost got to the point that no one was copying down her work. They were they were merely quoting her work, and so for most of of history, what we had were other people telling us what Sappho said or quoting her in their in their own essays or in their own writing. And it wasn't until the eighteen hundreds, um, early nineteen hundreds, as different ones were doing archaeology in in um, I think it was North Africa, but I could be wrong in that that they found a papyrus that actually had her her poetry on it. Um, by itself, not as part of a larger text. Well, that is so interesting because that explains better the the idea of the fragments, right? That it would be bits, the memorable bits that would um, remain, right? Um, it's like if Emerson were somehow delightfully chopped up and all we had is that possible? That, no, I wish it were. Um, and all we had were the little fragments of the the sort of you know hortatory things that he says. That it might be something like this that would be left, just little the most memorable bits, if you know what I mean. Right. Well, very good. Anything left to say on these this triad? No, I think we've uh, I think we've talked about them pretty well. All right, very good. Well, let's move on to number 95, which, if I recollect, is a longer one, so we won't all read it. Um, but, I don't know, would you mind, uh, Nathan, reading your translation because of the rhyming? I'd just be curious to... 
follow along. Well, here mind. is the trick. In my translation, it's just a three-line fragment that is reproduced, which I, looking at the Greek text, it's much longer. So I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to uh, disappoint on this one because I've only huh. got the last three lines in my well, translation. That's weird. I, I can tell. Uh, but a strange longing to pass on seizes me, and I need to see lotuses on the dewy banks of Acheron. Oh, hmm. I have, I have more than that. Yeah, and and, that. And, and like I said, I've got the Greek text up on my monitor, and it's much longer than that. So I, I'm realizing I now I, I should have looked more closely <laughs> when I was prepping. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what I'm trying to do is call you guys out. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, this is just bizarre. I have that. My version has the Greek on the opposite page, but I have zero Greek, so it doesn't help me. Um, but it's it's roughly the same spacing that they did for the translation, and I think that's on purpose to give you the sense of the length of it. But it has a lot of the brackets that indicate broken bits, right? Right, like right. Yeah. So I, I apologize, but I have to have one of you to uh, read yeah. a translation of this one. Well, I can do it. It's fine. It says, not gone gaila. I'm not sure what that is. Surely a sign for children mostly came in. I said, oh, master, I swear, no. I take no pleasure, but a kind of yearning has hold of me to die and to look upon the dewy lotus banks of Acheron. Sardis. No, wait, that's the end. I think that's 96 goes in there. Yeah, it ends with Acheron. So uh, what about this? Uh, it seems to be that she is kind of visualizing uh, her death or the underworld. Um, is that right? Jay, I'll let you tee this one up since you have okay. the whole poem to look at. I'm, I'm, I'm learning it for the first time here. <laughs> okay. Well, at the same time, my only thoughts were focused on the last three lines anyway. Yeah. Um, I took this – I don't know. I, I'm of two minds about this one. I do think that she's looking forward not, – not necessarily looking forward to death, but it would appear that she is at that age of life where she has accepted the reality of it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't quite sure how to take Asher on, whether it was supposed to be – the mythical Asheron, which even I found in my research for this one, even that has two different meanings. I was always associated, I always associated it with the river of woe and, you know, pay the ferryman and things like that. But in researching for this episode, there were also belief that it was a place of healing and of cleansing and of purification. The un, we might even say the undoing of old age. Um, could could that be what she's looking forward for but then it could also be physical because there is a physical river asheron that is known for its lotus blossoms at a certain time of year is she in her old age longing to revisit the place of her youth oh that never occurred to me because Uh given her given her um her politics which it's kind of hard to to well at least for me to put her poetry with politics, but apparently she was she was driven out of a few places in the course of her life. 
And isn't the Greek notion of the Elysian fields or whatever have to do with kind of a something that's pastorally significant for you? Um, am I getting that right? You know, so that it would make sense that it's kind of a longing for some pastoral beauty of her childhood. I'm sure there are versions of the afterlife that are like that. Uh, that's that's the thing. I mean, to say what is the Greek version of yeah, the afterlife? Sure. That's right. a that's a sucker's game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good point. Excellent point. You know, I mean, I I have a soft spot in my heart for the film Gladiator and the way that the Elysium Fields are, you know, sort of portrayed there. Um, oh sure, sure. The, oh yeah. The, you know the, that, the, that pastoral the, the, the wheat in the gentle breeze. Yeah, and so I mean, if you want that that idyllic sort of. Um, place then you're going to have a yearning for that to, to die right oh, sure to, and, and and working with just the last three lines i mean you know what i what i jotted down in my notes was i mean uh sappho will even turn the afterlife into a garden yes. uh, you know because i yeah uh because i mean I, I just feel like i mean whatever she is talking about uh you know whether it is you know cultic worship whether it is romance and at, the, at this point even death uh, she is going to get a garden involved in it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, apropos, though, to poetry, isn't it, to the poetic movement and how often it's compared to gardening, especially in the British poetic tradition, right? Um, even husbandry for Robert Frost. It's just there's this kind of notion of a poem is a good garden, and it's nature-given order and shape. Absolutely. And so... And, and the yearning associated with that afterlife is the yearning for a good poem, I think it might be safe to say. But I could be stretching it. Isn't that the point of poetry, though? Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm saying, you know, <laughs> to uh, to create this beautiful poem that uh, that's like a garden that that puts into order the beauty of the world. Right. Um, and to long to live inside of poetry in some way is to is to say, I want to live in that place of beauty. Um, and that's a place that's carved out, if you will, of the chaos and disorder of the world. I'm really waxing poetic now. In case you, <laughs> <laughs> you guys are like, what is she well, talking about? Oh, no, no, no. It's good. It's good. No. Now, now what, what's interesting here, though, and, and again, I think this goes to one of the old disputes about, you know, poetry that, that goes all the way back to Plato and, of course, gets picked up by Wordsworth and Coleridge and all those good English poets uh, is, you know, the, the source of poetry, right? Because, I mean, one thing that's interesting here is that the desire to see the lotuses of Acheron comes upon her. It seizes her. Uh, it's something that emerges from the... Or, no, it doesn't emerge. It's something that invades from the outside rather than emerging from within, Mm. Yeah, this yearning has hold of me is the way my translation reads. And again, you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm sure that that is a metaphor. You know, I although uh, I'm often accused of being entirely too eager to jump to allegory, uh, but I've got to think that's an allegory uh, that you know there's not actually some place that you could chart on a map that this desire came from to seize her, but uh, still, you know, it's framed as something that. Uh, imposes on her from the outside. Mm. So interesting. And I wonder how this would fit in with the whole 
apophatic tradition in poetry, you know, that, like, I always think of Emily Dickinson's Because I Could Not Stop for Death, and that prophetic impulse, for lack of a better word, to sort of what would happen at death, what, you know, what does that look like, a desire just to know and see. I don't wonder if any of that is in there. Oh, sure, sure. And I mean, I, I think of, you know, Plato's very, very brief dialogue, the Ion, uh, where, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's basically a, a long discussion of why do poets have a sophomore slump? And, oh. you know, basically what Socrates lands on is uh, sometimes the gods give you a really good poem, but then they forget about you when you're writing your second one. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> That's great. That's so great. All right, well, let's move on to, to uh, 58 on that note, which I pretty much turned over to you guys and just said, I have no idea what this poem is about. Um, and, and, yeah. And so I would really think that we could all read our three translations and just let the listeners realize, okay, nobody knows what this poem is about. So who wants to start out? I'll go ahead and read mine first. Uh, and again, this is the the happy, rhymy, uh, you know, Puchigian translation got it girls chase the violet bosom muses bright gifts and the plan plangent lyre lover of hymns stiff stiffness has seized on these once supple limbs and black braids with the passing years turned white age weighs heavily on me and the knees buckle that long ago like fawns pranced nimbly i groan much but to what end humans simply cannot be ageless like divinities they say that rosy forearm dawn when stung with love swept a sweet youth to the earth's rim, Tithonius, Tithonus, pardon me, even their age withered him, bound still to a wife forever young. Good night, that couldn't be more different from mine. All right, I was going to say. All right, well, let, let's, let's hear you. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe I looked at the wrong poem. No, <laughs> no, no, it was clearly you did not. There's enough that's, there's enough that it's, it's the same one. Yeah. Okay, all right, all right. I, I always have that anxiety that I've, I've prepped the wrong lesson for class. <laughs> I've done that before. Yep. Jay, go ahead and read yours, okay. and then I'll do mine. I pray, now a festival, under the earth, having a gift of honor, as I am now on the earth, taking the sweet-sounding lyre, I sing to the reed pipe, fleeing, was bitten, gives success to the mouth. Beautiful gifts of the violet-laden muses, children. The sweet-sounding lyre dear to song. My skin once soft is wrinkled now. My hair once black has turned to white. My heart has become heavy. My knees that once danced nimbly like fawns cannot carry me. How often I lament these things, but what can be done? No one who is human can escape old age. They say that rosy-armed dawn once took Tithonus, beautiful and young, carrying him to the ends of the earth. But in time, gray old age still found him, even though he had an immortal wife. Imagines. Might give. I love the pleasures of life, and this to me. Love has given me the brightness and beauty of the sun. Oh, my goodness. And now for the postmodern version. <clears throat> you all ready for this? Hit it. <laughs> Running away, bitten, you, makes away with the mouth. Beautiful gifts, children, song delighting, clear-sounding lyre, 
All my skin, old age already, hair turned white after black. Knees do not carry like fawns. But what could I do? Not possible to become dawn with arms of roses, bringing to the ends of the earth, yet seized. Wife imagines, might bestow. But I love delicacy, and this to me, the brilliance and beauty of the sun, desire has allotted. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, now I see why. Because when I, when I saw your notes, Christina, and then I yeah. looked at the poem, I thought, I, am I missing some profundity here? Because it, it seems fairly straightforward uh, yeah. in this translation. But now, now that I hear yours, I see why <laughs> this, this seemed uh, cryptic, let's call it. Yeah, it, I think it's the more literal translation, not knowing Greek, but um, Telonius is in both the yours and not in mine. Is yeah, that in to, the Greek? Yeah, Tithonus, it, yeah his Tithonus. name is there in the Greek, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay, this translator decided not to put Tithonus in here, which is really interesting to me, so. That is fascinating. And the only thing I could pick up besides the sort of phrases like song-delighting, clear-sounding, liar, and all my skin, old age, already hair turned white after black, right? Obvious uh, references to aging was the reference to the dawn with arms of roses, you know, the rosy fingered dawn that we get in the Iliad and a lot of, you know, that, that phrase that's repeated. That's the only thing I could make out of this. Oh, sure. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the dawn in Tithonus was kind of my anchor for interpreting this. So I, yeah. I, I, I can't imagine what I would have made of it without it because, I mean, in that myth, of course, uh, dawn uh, is a goddess who is taking on the role that is normally claimed by Zeus or Apollo or Hades or, you know, uh, a, a male-figured god and abducting the young uh, out of lust. Uh, and, you know, something terrible, I mean, it's obviously terrible to be abducted out of lust anyway, but something additional terrible always seems to happen in this, these stories. And in this case, uh, Tithonus is given, uh, you know, Athanatos, not dying or immortality, but he continues to age so that, you know, mm. in some versions, his body, you know, he basically becomes a zombie, <laughs> Uh, right. So that he can't speak, he can't move, he can't do anything. He just continues aging but not dying. And then right. in a, I, I think, a slightly less terrible version, uh, he becomes so old that he becomes a cricket. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, for some reason, uh, becoming a cricket strikes me as less terrible than being completely immobile. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, it would have helped. It would have helped me a lot to have Tithonus uh, translated here. Um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, with with that in place, I mean, it is a meditation on you know, even in our uh, divine stories, uh, you know, people who either wish for immortality. And of course, Tithonus didn't wish for it himself. He got it wished upon him. <laughs> uh, end up suffering for it. So I mean, you can long for uh, having healthy knees and black hair. Uh, you know, as, as I, as I, uh, actually you're not supposed to touch your face. So I certainly didn't just touch my white beard there. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, you can, uh, remember what it's like to have those young features, but, uh, actually to take them would, would yield something terrible. Yes. And my knees do not carry as my translation goes very well anymore either. So I, I hear that. Uh, <laughs> but I, the rest- I had a, I know that I had a longer, or not necessarily longer, I had a more precise translation 
than you did, uh, Christina. But mm-hmm. um, even I read it when I read it, I'm like, I didn't really get what the whole thing the whole thing was about. My gut reaction to it was something along the lines of, I'm too old for this and no one gets out alive anyway. Hmm. That seems like a good translation to me. <laughs> I and, did. And, yeah, I think because mine, you know, was more uh, modernized, I'll put it that way. Uh, it was rendered smooth, perhaps. Uh, I, I drew a lot more out of it, but I, I think that might be a function of the translator taking some liberties. Well, now I'm realizing that my translation fits with your zombie reading, Nathan, because it starts out running away bitten. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. I like that. Oh, goodness. Well, we've solved that one. Okay. (laughs) Actually, we should probably move on, um, unless you guys have something else to say about this poem to 121 and 140, but is there anybody else, any other comment? No, because I I like 121 and 140, so let's dig in. Let's dig in. These are both very short, so I will start with 121, and then you guys follow with your translations. But if you love us, choose a younger bed, for I cannot bear to live with you when I am the older one. But if I am your friend, choose the bed of someone younger, for I cannot bear to live with you if I am the older one. As you are dear to me, go claim a younger bed as your due. I can't st- stand being the old one any longer living with you. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. Kind of a rhyme there. And then 140, delicate Adonis is dying. Kytheria, what should we do? Strike yourselves, maidens, and tear your garments. Delicate Adonis is dying, Kytheria. What should we do? Beat your breasts, girls, and tear your clothes. Katharia, mm-hmm. precious Adonis is nearly dead. How should we proceed? Come, girls, beat your fists down upon your breasts and shred your dresses. So those are all, both, all six of those translations are close to each other, right? Like mm-hmm. the. So that's good. That makes it a little easier for us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm much closer than the previous. <laughs> <laughs> so Nathan, Nathan, why don't you start us off with uh, with your thoughts about certainly? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah one twenty one is the one that I I really kind of enjoyed thinking mm-hmm. through because uh, it is this notion of being the old one versus the younger one, uh, and you know what it makes me think of is you know among other things Plato's dialogues, the Phaedrus, and the mm-hmm. Symposium, which you know fo- focus so much on. Uh, older loved, o- older lovers, pardon me, uh, and their desires for their younger beloved. Uh, and this is a theme that, you know, I mean, is in a lot of uh, ancient texts, Greek and Latin. Uh, and, you know, here the meditation is really kind of a cyclical one, you know. Uh, it is, you know, addressed to the younger lover and saying, all right, you know, uh, because you are dear to me, because you are a friend in one of your translations... Uh, go claim a younger one. Uh, go and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm not, you know, any good uh, for those sorts of things anymore. So go claim yourself a younger lover. But then in the second couplet, my, my translation is four lines. Uh, you know, I can't stand being the older one any longer. So, I mean, the implication is uh, I have passed beyond being the older lover uh, into whatever comes after being a lover at all. 
and you are now old enough not to be the beloved, but rather to be the lover and pursue a beloved. So it's a it's a handing on of sorts. And I mean, I, I you know, this is probably a function of this this English translation, but I mean, there's a certain bitterness to it. It's you know, uh, you are your due in my translation uh, is to go and continue having these desires and fulfilling these desires. I am past that, uh, but you know, the implication certainly seems to be. But understand that you're now on the downhill slope. Mm. I wanted to uh, respond since my dog is barking right outside the door and get back to it. Well, I really, really didn't have a response to 121 because I could not necessarily figure out what what she meant. Like, it, it was almost, I don't know, I don't want to say that it was overwhelming. That's That's not the right word. But every time I read it, I came up with something different, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's like I wasn't sure if she was talking about about an age disparity that there was something wrong with the difference in ages about a something to do with mortality rates or a desire to avoid heartache when if and when a partner died i wasn't quite sure what to yeah. do, what to make of 121 that last bit that you just said you know when my partner dies that's the way that i read it um if you love us says my translation translation like the idea of us choose a younger bed because I will start to lose it when I'm getting older and I can't, you know, maintain this relationship with you. That's the way that I read it. But I'm really interested in what Nathan is um, saying about the the Fiedrison, the symposium, because I've just recently reread the Fiedrison. The symposium is definitely that place for that older, but they're always men, right? Like older men and the younger man. So what oh, about sure, and, that, and that's and that's what you makes know? Sappho so subversive yeah. in her way, right? Because I mean, this yeah. is, uh, and, I, and I'm looking at the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are these are, these are definitely. Oh no, that's interesting. And I and I've got to. Oh, remember my Greek from 20 years ago. I. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know the more the, Greek than I have the suffix on. Uh, Geraitera, or more geriatric than my, than the more geriatric comparative, uh, that suffix is feminine, but then the neoteron seems to be a neuter. So, I mean, it could be, you know, her younger man, or it could be a younger woman. But like I said, I mean, that, that dynamic between... Uh, it's the double comparatives that drew my attention. Because, yes. you know, uh, she, she is imploring the lover to find the younger, because she doesn't have it in her anymore to be the older mm-hmm. hmm. well is it is it more uh, I'm going to say charitable I, the, I'm looking for some word is it just more generous of this speaker than a typical older man might be in a relationship with a younger man of, of the Greek sort hard to say I mean I, my, my mind immediately goes to book one of Republic and I know I just wrote mm-hmm. in the third dialogue, but anyway, <laughs> it, it, my, my, my mind goes to book one of the Republic where there's the joke about, you know, the, the aging Sophocles, uh, you know, someone asks him, you know, mm-hmm. do you miss having sex with young women? And he says, no, it's like I've been freed from a tyrannical master. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I mean, the, at, at least in Plato, that is the subject of joking uh, but you know, I, I, I'll, I'll confess I'm not enough of a classicist to have a, a, uh, a sample big enough to make any generalizations. 
Yeah, well, it, as a woman speaker, I mean, it's so different, isn't it? If it's a younger man, uh, if it's a younger woman that she's talking about, I mean, I, I think there's been information recently that, that she did have male lovers. I don't know about the female lovers part because I just don't, haven't read enough about it. But it, Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I know that I have read somewhere that she had a daughter. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which, uh-huh. which biologically seems to necessitate that. Surely. But it's, it's, if it's a younger, at least if an older woman talking about a younger man, then it, it makes more sense to me as a poem, right? Because it's like older women just aren't interested in these kinds of things as much as younger men are. And, and so there is almost a kind of, I don't want to destroy what we have by me getting older and kind of aging out of it. Does that make sense? Oh, no, that's good. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And again, and like I said, that, 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 that certainly works with the double comparative there. Yeah. Yeah. Because it would be love for him to not want him to be, you know, stuck with that, I guess, as, as a way of Oh, and, and, and I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm noticing things in the Greek as I stare at it longer. Uh, but okay. the, the dear to me or beloved to me or a friend of mine, and it's philos, so it could be any of those three. Also mm-hmm. has a male suffix. So, I mean, I, I think, Christina, you're onto something here. I think this is a, an older woman with a younger man lover. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, has its attractions, but um, <laughs> at the end of the day, it may not be what an older woman really wants. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And, I, and again, my mind goes back to Symposium. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you assume that, you know, the Diotima character is older than Socrates, that, that, that's the same kind of dynamic. Mm, very good. And I, I do assume that, Jay's, by the way. Yeah. Jay is kind of silent on this, but that's okay. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm, I'm learning along with our listeners, so. Cause, <laughs> because, because I, again, I looked at 121 and I, I didn't know what, where, where to start tackling it. Well, we can turn to 140 because I think it's got some interesting stuff going on as well. Mm-hmm. Christina, won't you hit lead off on 140? What's what's going on with this one? Well, um, I don't know anything about this except uh, a sort of um, sadness for somebody that, that we love that who is dying, and this means mourning. And uh, it, it reminded me of the really probably one of the most inane stories in the Bible, not that the Bible is inane, but when what's-his-name says, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that I see when I come back from this great victory, and it ends up being his daughter. Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah, oh my gosh. You know, and and that kind of lament is what this, it's like somebody who died too young. Uh, Somebody, that's what it felt like to me, and that the only thing that we can do is lament, tear our garments, and strike ourselves in um, sadness. Well, Jay, in our in our pregame notes, you said that this was the first extant mention of the Adonis cult? Or is uh, that what you said? Well, not of the Adonis cult, but of Adonis period. And I wondered about that, and I found it multiple places that this was the first extant mention of Adonis at all. Oh, not fascinating. Just, so... not, just, not just of of the cult behind him. And I'm not sure if this would actually be part of the cult or not. 
only because we know what they did, if that makes sense. Like a lot of the secret Greek cults, we don't know their practices because nobody told it because they were secret. But this was a very public display. Or maybe it's the public side of the of the Adonis worship. I'm not sure of that. But but regardless of, of what it's talking about, it is the first extant mention of Adonis in, in the ancient world, which is pretty neat. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I, I had no idea about that. Now, I mean, Jay, I, I actually did, yeah. not, I did not know that Adonis cult was one of the mystery religions. Well, yeah, can I, you talk about that? Well, I didn't either, if that makes sense. And I might be getting some things confused. That's why I'm not sure if it was a mystery religion or not. I'm, and again, I'm, we might be—I might be um, misunderstanding what you mean by by the by the Adonis cult, because oh, okay. I couldn't. Well, I, I, in other words, when you said cult, my mind went to mystery religion, and I don't think it was. Ah, okay, okay, and, 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 I, and I just meant the annual festival of Adonis. Okay, and, and, you know what so, I mean by that? I'm, I'm mainly familiar with yeah. the the version centuries later that's centered in Damascus and other cities right. in Syria. Uh, right. Greek speaking Syria, by the way, so pre Arabic Syria, uh, yeah, but in which I, they I would. Stumbled. Oh, so go I, ahead, go ahead. I was going to say I stumbled down a rabbit hole with that tracing Adonis worship throughout the Middle East. So. Oh, well, run yeah, with that because I, I don't but, know much don't, beyond I was Syria. Say, don't 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 ask. I was going to say don't ask me to tell you what it is because I skipped it because I didn't have time to. Oh, okay, to read it. okay. All right, all right. Well, here, here's what I know, and it, it's not much, is that, you know, the, uh, Adonis worship is something that is definitely exported out of Syria to the far reaches of the Roman Empire in the early uh, centuries of the Christian era. And what their ceremonies would involve uh, is a recitation of the story of uh, Aphrodite and Adonis, or Venus and Adonis, which, in which he's uh, killed on a hunting expedition. And then they would have a, a public mourning for Adonis, and then he would be raised up from the dead again. So, uh, you know, of course, the, the most famous connection in our day uh, with the Adonis cult is that people who want to say that Christianity is a, you know, tradition of plagiarism, uh, you know, they'll say that we borrowed the annual festival of rising from the dead from the Adonis cult. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so I like never I, heard yeah. about that. Yeah, and and so like I said, Jay, I mean, because I did not do the research that you did, I just kind of assumed that the Adonis cult was already around here in the seventh century BC, and it, so this is you know just part of their liturgy, if you will. From what I read, they they might be related, but they were not necessarily similar. In other words, the only similarity is that they were worshiping Adonis. Now, again, gotcha. I could. I could be wrong on that because I didn't I didn't do all the reading. Sorry. Um, but what I did find is that at least in this time period, what would have happened was that the women would have planted um, planted well planted plants, planted some kind of plants on their rooftops. So you've got new plants in good soil, bright sun. They're going to quickly flourish, but then because of that same bright sun, they're going to quickly die just as Adonis did. And as those plants died, then you would have the ritualistic mourning, the beating of the breast, the tearing of the clothes, the and the rituals that would go along with that. Um, so, and I know, I know that I read way too much into this poem. I read things that aren't there, 
But at the same time, I wonder if we couldn't use it to think about how we react to death in our own lives, um, because this is a call to ritualistic mourning. And I wondered, you know, what rituals might might we be called to practice? And in their world, they were they were public. They weren't they weren't hidden away. It was it was a call to remember death and to do so publicly. So I don't want to say that I'm a very I don't want to say that I'm death positive. That sounds really a weird way to put it. But I think that at least in American culture, we tend to make death too clinical, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes um, a ton of sense. So I read this as, again, like maybe the ancient Greek version of Memento Mori. Oh, sure, sure. sure. And, and I think I uh, localized it a little bit more on the calendar, Jay, because I, I thought of this more as a 7th century B.C. Good Friday liturgy. Because, okay. Because Adonis is dying, you know, this is a Stations of the Boar service. Huh. Interesting. Well, I mean, I, I think Jay has a point at the, about that, and it connects to that previous poem about propriety, right? What's the what's the proper thing to do here? Um, and and at least in my version, of, there's definitely an interrogative. But how do you know an interrogative in the Greek? Um, is there? A- um, I am I am looking right now at the Greek text. So let me see if I can do something with it. <laughs> You know, because it's like, what should we do? Which is, you know, there's not a lot of questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The, the, the T there, I mean, you know, that is an interrogative word. That's that's something okay. I don't remember from my Greek 20 years ago. <laughs> well, that's, then that's interesting, right? It's a, sort of asking, what do we do in this situation? What is the what is the appropriate response? Right, right. And, and I'm wondering if it's saying something against the whole idea of fake mourning. You know, the people that they would like call in as mourners and that's a big professional mourners mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah and it's interesting yeah, christine I, i'll go ahead jay fire no, away i was thinking i was thinking that as i as i'm sitting here literally right now i'm thinking off the top of my head um you know calling out fake mourners i was just thinking it's like what if we read this thing what if we read this poem sarcastically we might say mm. like like it's like it's a rhetorical question like Delicate Adonis is dying, Katheria. What do we do? Be our or tear our clothes and beat our breasts. That kind of <laughs> that 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 reading. And I don't know if that's what was intended. But when you said the you know calling out fake mourning. Anyway, sorry. Well, that, no, no, that, yeah. that, that's good. That's good, Jay. Because I mean that puts it at a remove from where I was reading it. But I think they're both valid readings because I, I read it as internal to the Adonis festival, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's something parallel to uh, lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord, right? Kithra, and that what was, shall we do? Mm-hmm. Beat your breast maidens and rend your gar- garments. Right, that was my original my original thought too, but as we're discussing it, it's like if you, if you switch the tone, it takes an entirely different meaning. Yeah, and if we want to connect it to that earlier poem that we discussed about, you know, the appropriate place uh, for the muses and lament and all that, then maybe it's saying that these fake mourners, you know, that's not poetry. That's, that's really not true lament because it's sort of, this is the way that it's always done. You just tear your garments and you do this as opposed to actually having a poetic uh, remembrance or something. And that listeners is the fun you can have when you only got 12 Greek words. (laughs) (laughs) Was it that much of a stretch? (laughs) 
that's, that's what yeah, I'm saying. I, I think so. that both of them are valid readings of what we have. Uh, and the reason that's possible is because we have so little. <laughs> so true. Well, on that note, we probably should close off our discussion, uh, but I don't want to cut anybody off. If you have any other final things you want to say about any of these poems or in sort of relationship with each other. No, I think it's been a good conversation. I'm happy to I, wrap. Very much so. All right. Well, yeah. super. I will then just thank the listeners for listening to our speculation about what these poems mean and so little that we have available to us, but we hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did uh, for the Christian Humanist Organization. We are, uh, I'm Christina, and we've had Nathan and Jay. We hope you will join us again soon.